0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your
1: host, Greg LeBlanc.
0: Hi, welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Colin Mayer, who is a professor at the Said School at University of Oxford of Management Studies and also was the Dean at the SAID School at Oxford and helped to get that school off the ground. And so it, it's only appropriate when I, uh, from your readings, I backed out the idea that you, like me, believe that one of the most important, if not the most important inventions or creations of mankind is this thing we call the corporation, right? So you know, a lot of people think it's the computer or the, or the steam engine. And, and I know there was a president of Columbia University a couple of years back who said that the most important invention of modern times is the limited liability corporation. But I think you'd make, make the case that that's only a sort of a, um, a special case of this thing which we call the corporation, which, which goes way back to Roman times and perhaps even before. And so why is it? How could you support that claim if the firm is just simply a, a nexus of contracts or a device for managing agency costs or transaction costs, as so many of us in, in the discipline of economics believe, that's not a very glamorous <laughs> purpose. If it's just one of those things, then, then how can it be such a significant, important invention of, of humanity?
1: No, because it's not just that. It's a remarkable invention for bringing together the capacity and capability of mankind to work together to create phenomenal outcomes and transformational change. And it's no accident that the uh, Industrial Revolution and the dramatic increase in growth that occurred from the middle of the 18th century onwards coincided with the development of this new invention called the corporation that brought together something that was started in Roman times, but then during the uh, 17th century was fused together with the notion of a partnership to create a combination of a remarkable administrative arrangement together with entrepreneurship and financing. And it's that which was the basis of the liftoff of economies around the world.
0: Now, you say that the intellectual history of the corporation is sort of an under understudied field, and I think you made uh, some no insignificant contribution to that history in this book right here, uh, Prosperity, and you sort of uh, anticipated it in your earlier book, Firm Commitment. And so I'm wondering, why do you think the history of the corporation is so understudied? And I've always been interested in the history of the corporation, and I've always I've defined the corporation a little more broadly than the way you, you defined it. I, I've always thought of kind of the church as a corporation or the, or the individual bishoprics as corporations and the towns of, and the cities of England and, and the Hanseatic League as, as corporations and, and even like the uh, you know, the Publicani back in ancient Rome as corporations. Why is this such an understudied field? Because
1: it's not recognised for the true invention that it's been, and that is that it was designed with a uh, what looks to be at the face of it a rather boring function to undertake administrative roles in ancient Rome, looking after buildings, collecting taxes, mil- minting coins. It's not the sort of thing that really excites people a great deal. And then you're right, it became the mechanism for running municipalities, towns across Europe. And then it became the basis of this institution that I'm sitting in here in Oxford. The universities and the most ancient universities in the world were corporations. And then it became the basis of one of the largest religious organizations in the world, the Catholic Church. So it began to take on an immense significance that grew beyond it just being an administrative organisation. But then the thing that really changed it was that point that I was mentioning just now, that at the same time as these developments of the corporation was happening, in the Middle East in particular, there was this emergence of the notion of an enterprise as a way of enhancing trade and commercial activities, which was based on a partnership okay, very different from a corporation. A corporation is a legal entity. It's a distinct body, distinct from the individuals who comprise it. The partnership is just a collection of individuals working together. Well, what happened in particular in around 16th, 17th century England was the formation of the guilds, which were professional organisations that brought together those two things, this amazing administrative arrangement, together with the inspiration of entrepreneurs and people who were engaged in trade. And it brought that real strength of the administrative function to bear on what were really pretty small enterprises, which were trading around the world. And then suddenly, these massive things began to appear, like the East India Company and the merchant adventurers and the Russian company that engaged in exploration and established uh, great trading activities like the Hudson Bay Company around the world. It was transformational in that merging together of two very different types of activities.
0: Well, I think our modern conception of the corporation is essentially something that individuals create and we Kind of delegate upward some kind of uh, centralized control over these individual contributions. But historically, I think the conception of the corporation was sort of a delegation downward from the state, right? Sort of a outsourcing some administrative function or some specific purpose to private parties, right? So it's sort of an extension of, of state power. And I think that view of the corporation has has kind of faded, Although, uh, perhaps in China, they might disagree. <laughs> they, they probably still hold somewhat to that notion. And so it sort of sits in, in the middle as this quasi-state-like like entity, which only has its, its power as almost by grant from the king or grant from, from parliament. And you try to remind us of that original conception. Because I think you make the point that when it was viewed that way, then the purpose of the corporation was more explicit and oftentimes narrowly constrained, right, and continually supervised and and renewed by these central authorities. Is that a fair conception, of at least part of your story?
1: Yeah, you've put it brilliantly, Greg. And that's really the, the heart of the issue of the corporation, that it is a way of providing control and direction from the top. But what was really important about those entrepreneurial enterprises that I was talking about that were fused into it was that they were driven by individual initiatives. And so the issue that the corporation presents is, how do you combine that merit in terms of having a centralized direction and control? with not losing that notion of innovation and enterprise and entrepreneurship that is so important for the success of a company. And it wasn't helped by the fact that initially, corporations were essentially licensed by king and government and parliament, and therefore basically operated within a very clearly defined straitjacket, as to what was deemed to be acceptable or unacceptable. And it was when we come to the middle of the 19th century, a bit earlier in particular in North America, that we move towards this notion of, you don't have to be constrained by government. or You don't have to be simply licensed. Anyone can set up a company, okay? And that's the next big development that occurs and the next great spur to economic advancement that allows companies to free themselves of the constraint of Parliament and King. But then it's it's still very important that the company gets that balance between having the ability to control things centrally, but ensuring that that entrepreneurship, that innovation is not lost by delegating decision-taking down the organisation so that people have the legitimacy to pursue that innovation as well.
0: So you actually begin this book, Purpose, with a question, which is, you say, law is to justice, medicine is to health, business is to what exactly? And I think most people would not would have trouble answering that, that question, and maybe they would answer it by looking to the title of the book and saying prosperity, and you say, no, it's actually about purpose. But when I think about lawyers, one of the problems with lawyers or the difficult aspects of their job is that they have kind of two masters, right? So with professional responsibility, it means that you are essentially an agent of the court as well as an agent of your client. And so you're trying to balance the interests of your client with the the interests of the legal system or the court. And I think back when corporations were chartered or licensed, the managers of the corporations also had to kind of manage this responsibility toward their shareholders, but also towards the entity which chartered them and when we moved to kind of the the general purpose corporation it kind of coincided with the rise of shareholder primacy because now we only had one constituency that we really needed to kind of focus on and presumably whatever concern we have for the public is going to be replaced by regulation and if regulation does its job and law does its job then managers can just focus on this this fiduciary duty that they have to to shareholders. Could you talk a bit about the rise of kind of shareholder primacy and particularly the extreme form that it takes in the UK? I think a lot of people who are uh, more familiar with with U.S. law, they don't realize the extent to which shareholder primacy is the norm in the UK and how it differs from, say, Delaware law or, or U.S. law.
1: Yeah. So, to come back to your observation of what I say at the beginning of the book, you know, many people would answer the question business is to what, with the answer to profit, so that business is about profit. And that is exactly the view that's emerged over the last 60 years, and in particular was encapsulated so clearly and effectively by Milton Friedman in his, first of all, he said it in 1962, and then he said it in 1970 again, that there is one and only one social purpose of business to increase profit so long as it stays within the rules of the game. Okay, so he defined the purpose of the business exactly along the lines of the way in which you're characterizing it. It's there to make money, there to make profits. It has to act within the law. It has to act within the rules of the game, which are regulation but basically then the duty of the director is straightforward it's to to make money now that notion of the purpose of the corporation stands in marked contrast to how i dis- defined the origination of the corporation as a public entity okay so you know this process of fusing fusing the administrative function with these enterprises then ends up by the end of the 20th century, with us shifting from one extreme, namely it's just there to perform a public function, to the other extreme of saying, it's just there to make money, okay? Now, both of those are incorrect depictions as to what we are looking for from the corporation in the 21st century. And you mentioned the fact that the UK in some respects exemplifies the extreme of profit-oriented companies. And it does, in many respects. Many people think the US is the exemplifier of a profit-oriented capitalist system. But in many respects, the UK is actually even more extreme because, for example, we have a very active market for corporate control, which is very much focused on the interests of the shareholders above all. Now, why is that a damaging view of the company or the corporation? The answer is because that description that Milton Friedman put forward of go for the profit so long as you don't violate regulation and the law is a source of immense problems because it basically says that the company should do whatever it can To generate profits, irrespective of the impact that it has on its employees, its societies, its environment, so long as in the process of doing that, it doesn't violate laws or it doesn't lose its reputation. And the consequence of that has been exactly what we've observed over the last 60 years as the movement towards profit gathered pace. And that is that the corporation has created a huge amount of wealth for some, and in the process, intensified levels of inequality and social exclusion immensely, and had a devastating consequence on the environment. And that is exactly what you would expect from. A notion of that's what the purpose of a business is. It will do whatever it can to generate profit, irrespective of the impact it has on others, including the natural world.
0: Well, maybe we can dig into that kind of theory—the nexus of contracts theory. I think it, of Alkian and Demsetz as being the folks that really, you know, articulated this most clearly. You know, they make the point, and I think you cited a couple other academics in in firm commitment that make this same argument. And the argument is that suppliers of labor, they can essentially draft hiring agreements and contracts and uh, negotiate for terms. Suppliers of, of inputs can negotiate terms. Suppliers of debt capital can negotiate terms. And all of them have some body of law that protects them, whether it be labor law or whether it be competition law or whether it be you know, a debtor creditor law or just plain old contract law. And the only folks that don't have remedies, right, that are spelled out in some contract are the folks who supply the equity capital. And so they're the ones that need to have control in order to protect their interests. And so the whole argument is, is built on this idea that fully complete contingent contracts can be drafted for all of those other domains in which the corporation interacts with with other parties. And so they don't need the, the protections of control. So are those assumptions wrong? Is 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 there something wrong there? And then and then I guess secondarily right, the idea is that when we're dealing with externalities, the idea is, well, there's regulation and then there's the high quality tort law that protects people against trespass and pollution and this sort of stuff. And so the, the kind of movement towards shareholder primacy coincided with the emergence of all these laws. And, and back in the 18th century, you know, we didn't have good law, we didn't have good regulation, we didn't have any of this stuff. And so the only way to control the behavior of the companies was through some kind of direct command and control from the central government, right? In the form of limitations on, on the charter and constraints on activities. And then the discontinual meddling by the government would be a way of fine tuning what the companies did. Is that sort of the story? That, is that the nexus of contracts story? historically? And if so, what's wrong with that story?
1: It is the story. And you set out extremely clearly why it's the wrong story. Because you quite correctly said, if we had a complete set of contracts and markets that specified every potential contingency, my goodness me, the world will work extremely effectively. Tell that story to workers or the unemployed in the slums of Kibera in Nairobi. Tell that story to people who lost significant amounts during the financial crisis in terms of the costs that were imposed upon them, the taxpayers that had to bail out the bankrupt banks. Tell that to the future generations who are going to inherit a planet that is going to be devoid of many of the species and natural world benefits that we derive present or potentially won't inherit a world at all. Tell them that this complete set of contracts is in place and giving them adequate protection. Because it's just a fiction. And it's a very nice fiction. And let let me not... I'm an economist and a financial economist. And so my whole focus has been on how does one think about the application of these models. They are very elegant conceptualizations of a world, but it's not our world, and it's not the world we want to have. So one really has to understand The limitations before one simply concludes that is the way in which we should be organizing our world some
0: part of your story has to do with this notion that all of these relationships that you have with your stakeholders are relational right they're not fully specified contracts and so there's going to be investments made by uh, workers by suppliers and these investments are essentially non-recoverable and perhaps in a world where you could draw up a contract that would completely indemnify them for this non-recoverable investment, that would be great. But those things are impossible. And so there's there's this reliance that is made. And I think you described this in, in, in Firm Commitment pretty well at the very beginning of the book where you talk about the relational nature of all these contracts and the specific investments made by all these contributors. And then you say that you know law should basically enable commitments right? And good corporate law would provide a way for managers to make irreversible and credible commitments to these stakeholders. And shareholder primacy makes it very, very difficult for them to to do this. Do you need to drive kind of a, a wedge between the shareholders and the managers? Do you need to have some kind of positive agency costs, so to speak? Do you need to sort of tie the hands of the shareholders and give the managers some insulation from shareholder control so that they can make these kinds of, of commitments and earn this trust from these contributors? And wouldn't, if so, wouldn't that ultimately flow back to the shareholders in the form of higher profits and, and better valuations?
1: The solution is not to drive a wedge between investors and firms. It's to recognize Exactly the opposite. And it it's your point that in essence, because of the fact that contracts are not complete, that we cannot make them conceivably complete, certainly if you think about it in terms of the future and future generations, they don't exist. They can't write the contracts. Once one recognizes that, then one recognizes that in essence what drives the world is, if you like, the inverse of fully specified contractual world. It's a world based on relationships, of relationships of trust with other parties and what makes for successful businesses. And when you speak to people in business, you will hear this time and time again, that the most important asset that they can create is the trust of other parties with which they're engaged the trust of their employees, of their suppliers, of their communities, of their customers. That's what gives rise to the benefits that's conferred on other parties. And it's what gives rise to the benefits to companies. It creates more loyal customers, more engaged employees, more reliable suppliers, etc, etc. How does one achieve that? One achieves that through recognising that that description I started off by talking about in terms of the fusing together of an administrative organization, the corporation, together with investors and enterprise and entrepreneurship of the partnerships, those things together create the power to establish those relations of trust. Because what happens is it allows investors to benefit from investing in activities that then can create value from establishing those relations of trust, okay? And so what gives rise to the most successful business enterprises are ones where there is a unity of purpose between what investors are looking for from their investments, what those leading companies are seeking to do And what employees in those organizations recognize as being their roles in doing. And they then create those relationships with other parties outside, like their customers and their suppliers and their communities, which create immense benefits and value for investors, as well as for the communities and societies in which they work. And I think you make the claim that the
0: companies that are able to do this best are often ones that have concentrated ownership structures that have maybe a large family role, either fully or partially owned by by a founding family maybe, or at least have dual class shareholdings so that there's a founder or or a visionary who um, has the ability to make decisions without having to worry about the market for corporate control or blowback from from Wall Street. Is that the case? Because most, I think, economists would, would say that type of ownership structure is oftentimes one that leads to to corruption, crony capitalism, a failure to respond to information that's out there in the market, right? Essentially the minority shareholders or the non-voting shareholders, their interests are being ignored and preferences of these concentrated shareholders are essentially ru- running roughshod over over the other investors. How is it that this ownership structure can have such a profound effect on the trust relationships that are formed between the company and their stakeholders?
1: Well, first of all, let me just explain that the empirical evidence that you're referring to about is this essentially exploitation of the insiders, the families of other parties. That was a prevailing view about 15 to 20 years ago. And now there's a growing body of evidence that looks to the opposite type of conclusion. And let me just start off by describing why the simple observation that it's an inherently undesirable form of ownership cannot be correct. And that simple observation is that by far and away, the largest type of owner of even the largest listed companies on stock markets of the world our families. You find this almost universally around the world. The one country where it's most prominently an exception happens to be my country, the UK, which comes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier on about the fact that in some respects, the UK is at an extreme in terms of its capitalist system. In virtually every other country, you find that families are dominant forms of ownership of even the largest companies. If they were so, it's a bit difficult to believe that could have persisted as the case. But the second point is, why is it that family ownership is potentially such a valuable form of ownership? And the answer is, because of the nature of a family and a family business, where what families in general want to do is to pass on their businesses through generations. And it's that intergenerational view of the company that does exactly what I was just talking about in terms of how do you effectively bring together the interests of companies that want to build up these relations of trust with their communities, their societies, their customers, et cetera, with investors who want to make money. Well, the answer is If you have a dominant shareholder that's interested in, yes, the profitability of the business, because that's an income for the family, but in a context of creating that benefit that lasts through multiple generations, where they'll be able to pass on a successful business to their children, that then provides the alignment that one's looking for, where the owners of the company, the real owners, namely the families, have an interest in long-term relationships. And that's an immense source of success. And I'm not saying that every family business is a paragon of virtue. There are terrible examples of exploitation. The worst that we've probably had in recent history has been the one associated with Purdue Pharma and the OxyContin opioid disaster. There are examples of real failures of family businesses. They can be amazing forces for good, but because they have this immense power, they can also be causes of immense problems. And that really gets us to the heart of the issue as to what is it that we want companies to do? What do we want their purposes to be? And how do we ensure that we get?
0: Right. So I think a lot of financial economists would say that a family company is sort of a evidence of market failure, right? So if you see, for instance, in the Middle East, you see all these family owned enterprises and they say, well, that's, that's because there's the capital markets aren't, aren't functioning properly. And that may be true in, in certain parts of the world. But the fact that you see these family firms, even in worlds that have, in, in countries that have the most sophisticated capital markets, suggests something. But the financial economists would still say that they're probably going to be more risk averse than a a publicly traded company.
1: Is there any evidence of that? There's certainly evidence that family businesses follow a conservative approach in terms of the extent to which they are willing to sacrifice the reputation of the company and the family. And that element in terms of being interested in the reputation of the family, is potentially a source of inhibiting innovation, entrepreneurship and experimentation. But it's equally well a mechanism for ensuring responsibility on the part of the owners of a company. So one of the interesting elements of the pandemic was To what extent did different organisations respond by supporting those who were most vulnerable during the onset of the pandemic, and in particular, to what extent were they willing to support their employees? One form of that conservatism that was demonstrated by family businesses was a strong willingness to recognise the importance of supporting their employees during that period, and really incorporating them as part of the wider family in the organization.
0: So I wanna get back to this idea of externalities. You know, there's a whole movement in both the UK and the US, which sometimes referred to the ESG movement, where investors are trying to express their displeasure or pleasure <laughs> so with corporate actions, particularly with respect to the environment, with human rights and so forth. And you've discussed this in your book, and you talk a bit about how it, it's not really adequate as a philosophy of corporate governance, but it still builds on this idea that companies need to go beyond what the law and regulation does in terms of constraining their behavior, and they need to think more broadly about negative externalities that they might be generating. But, but I think some folks would say that this is ignoring the price system and it's ignoring the kind of democracy, right? So an example would be Google recently announced that they would no longer be bidding on certain national defense contracts because they thought that this was unethical and a lot of investors were were supporting this and kind of pressuring them to do this. But I guess the the question some people would say is, listen, if if this is a democratically elected government and the, the people have spoken and they, they want national defense and they, and they want, CIA and they want a military. And if they don't like it, they can easily vote differently in, 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 elections. And so why should Google be deciding, right? What's right and wrong. And if they, if they want it to be a different way, they can certainly lobby the government and support different lobbying efforts. But I think Friedman's point would be that there's a process. Right for determining what constitutes optimal pollution or what constitutes kind of you know optimal behavior in different domains, and that the companies should respect the price system that's generated through that kind of legislative process. And that
1: is exactly the power of the corporation, because Google can say we're not going to bid for these contracts. Others might want to. Others might want to work for companies that are willing to bid for these contracts, but. We're setting out as our purpose and the values of the organization certain things which suggest that this is not the type of company we want to work for. And that does exactly what the market economists want. They encourage greater plurality of purposes and values of businesses that allow people to choose, to choose as customers, as suppliers and employees of organizations. Which are the islands that they want to inhabit? Where do they want to work? Who do they want to purchase from? The trouble with the um, the Freeman doctrine is, far from it promoting the operation of markets, it constrains the operation of markets. Because it says, there's only one objective that we regard as being legitimate. And that is the pursuit of profits, which is often interpreted as being the pursuit of short term profit. That is the one and only legitimate objective. What Google is saying is, yes, you know, of course we want to make money. And my goodness me, you only have to look at the valuation of the alphabet to recognize the extent to which it's being successful. But we've got values that go beyond it. And if you're telling us, well, that pursuit of values is a source of value destruction from other investors, just tell me how many others Killicorn companies, as they're termed, trillion dollar companies there are in the world. The answer is that there are approximately five of them, of which Alphabet is one. Look at the others, Microsoft's and the Apple's of this world. These, what distinguishes those organisations? The answer is they were established by founders with visions and notions as to the types of businesses and the values that they wanted to have associated with those businesses. In many cases, we may feel the values of the business are not how we want them to be designed. In the case of Facebook, another killer corn company, it's been unbelievably successful in terms of creating social networking and social interactions but it's got a business model, which many people legitimately say is about stealing data. So that it's not to say that these are paragons, but what they certainly don't demonstrate is that if you've got values, if you've got vision about the types of problems that you're seeking to solve, that is going to kill off your commercial performance. It does exactly the opposite. It's a source of economic value creation. And the most successful companies in the world are those that have clearly defined purposes of solving problems and values to uphold.
0: Right. And so, if you, the agency theory folks, they ought to be happy if managers are expressing the social purpose preferences of investors, right? So, agency theory is just. Making sure that the agents do the bidding of the principals, and, and it's not obvious that the principals are interested only in profit maximization, right? But you're saying in, in the UK, profit maximization is is the norm against which managers are are held. If shareholders express a desire for a corporation to be more purpose driven, can managers use their business judgment to support that goal?
1: Yes, if and this is exactly what's happening. And the ESG agenda is moving investors in this direction of recognizing that companies should not simply be promoting greater profits come what may. They have to recognize their responsibility in relation to the environment, their CO2 emissions in terms of the way in which they impact in terms of inequality and social exclusion. So they have to take that into account and increasingly investors are going to be measuring them against that and we're going to find greater standardization of those measures against which companies are going to be evaluated. So the investor community is moving in that direction. What it's hard for a system that just depends on institutional investors holding relatively small share blocks of shares in companies to do is to provide that long term intergenerational perspective that i said that the blockholders and in particular flat families bring to the story and if you take companies like google and facebook which did use and dual class share structures as ways of retaining the influence of the founders what that basically does is to say that alongside those institutional investors, one needs someone who has a significant degree of ownership in the company that can bring the stability that's required to really be able to deliver on those long-term visions. The move in that direction is happening, but don't lose sight of what one needs as well, and that is ownership of the future. Someone who really takes account of the long-term interests of the company as
0: well. I think a lot of the critics of ESG investing, they point to the difficulty when it comes to evaluating performance, right? So a lot of critics, I interviewed someone who's uh, interviewed a professor at NYU recently and, and he said that his concern about ESG is that it will provide cover for all sorts of bad management. Right? So that whenever there's a problem with performance, financial performance, the managers can can argue that they're pursuing some alternative uh, agenda or, or purpose. Do we need to come up with better tools that would enable investors to monitor the performance of, of managers and kind of hold them against some kind of standard that they themselves have have set out in terms of you know are they actually fulfilling their purpose? Do we need analysts to spend more time evaluating? the extent to which companies live up to their stated purposes?
1: The answer to all of that is yes, we do need those things. But let me just start off by saying that that view that you've just expressed, that it's a cover behind which management can excuse themselves of their financial performance, that is simply a misconception of what is going on and what needs to happen. And let me just give an illustration of that. Danone, and what happened at Danone in terms of the removal of its CEO, Emmanuel Faber, is regarded as being an illustration of how purpose-driven companies, at the end of the day, are going to be undermined by markets that are focused on profit. And that's absolutely you know, correct, that Danone's financial performance, its share price performance, was significantly worse than its peers, the companies like Unilever and Nestle. And as a consequence, it was then subject to activist interventions by two activist funds that were not actually focused on shifting it away from its ESG or its purpose-driven agenda, but really getting it to focus on the fact that should be part of value creation. It shouldn't be a cost to the business. It's not just a cost center. It should be a source of increasing performance and better value creation. And Danone had not delivered on that. So it is not a cover in any sense behind which management can hide because the purpose of an organization is to deliver greater performance, financial performance on the back of solving those problems. Now to come to your question, of, do we need better measures of the extent to which companies are really fulfilling their purposes? The answer is yes. And that's steadily happening. ESG was a bit of a wild west world in terms of the way in which a vast number of providers of ESG emerge, often providing conflicting information on the performance of companies. Now what's emerging is a move towards standardization of those measures. And do we need to have investors more engaged in terms of evaluating companies against this? That's exactly what I'm talking about. We need the shift in terms of investor focus away from just focusing on financial performance to how companies are really delivering on their purposes and fulfilling the uh, objectives in terms of what gives rise to better performance.
0: And so as as long as firms are explicit and transparent about it, um, some of the examples that you used in the book, right, some of the Quaker firms that treated their workers quite well back in the late 19th century, of course, were deeply involved in some troublesome activities in in the colonies, right? And some of our purpose-driven joint stock companies in the 18th century obviously had some troublesome and problematic behaviors. Is it about having firms be transparent and explicit about their purposes and, uh, and then being held to those stated purposes in some responsible way?
1: Absolutely. So let's be absolutely clear what we mean by a purpose of a business. A purpose is the reason why business is created, why it exists, its reason for being. Okay, so it answers the question, why is a company formed in the first place? And why does it exist? So it's absolutely fundamental. And the notion of what that purpose is, to my mind, is around solving problems that you and I as individuals, as societies, and the natural world face. And to do so in a particular way, in a way that is profitable, financially sustainable and commercially viable it's not about philanthropy it's not about marketing and looking good it's about the core of a business and it's linked to the strategy of a business so the way in which i define the purpose of a business is it's to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet and not to profit from producing problems for either people or planet. So to take the examples you were giving of the 19th, 20th century companies that were in many cases, very purpose-driven organizations. So as you say, many of them were Quaker companies, many of them in the cocoa, the chocolate business. They set out with a very clear purpose in terms of the reason why we think that this is important is, take chocolate as an example, was that they saw there as being a need to shift people away from excessive alcohol consumption to other forms of having enjoyable things to drink. And so it started off with a clearly defined objective and purpose. But over time, what do we observe? We observe that associated with that are a lot of detriments, you know, detriments in terms of sugar intake, in terms of obesity, etc. So that there are problems that are associated with something that initially had a very valid purpose. Alongside that is the problem of where does the chocolate come from? It came from parts of the world where people were seriously exploited in one form or another of essentially the equivalent of slave trade and much modern slavery is still associated with cocoa production. And that really illustrates the importance of the two parts of my notion of the purpose of a business. Yes, to produce profitable solutions. They were doing that, at least originally, in terms of their objective function, but also not to profit from producing problems. And they were profiting from producing problems in terms of the uh, places and the people from which they were resourcing the cocoa. So companies have to be accountable, not only for delivering their purpose, but for also demonstrating that the way in which they deliver that purpose is one that does not allow them to profit from imposing detriments on other parts. So
0: sometimes when you talk about purpose, it makes me think about the ways in which corporations were conceived kind of back in the day before general purpose corporations. And so, for instance, if the purpose of, say, a Cadbury is we're going to produce, you know, chocolate, or we're going to produce wonderful chocolate and make the world, you know, a better place through through chocolate, how do companies with those types of, of purposes deal with a changing environment, right? So, you know, the Chase Manhattan Bank was originally founded as a waterworks, right? Alexander Hamilton got the charter to you're supposed to bring water to the city of Manhattan and that's your job and that's all you're supposed to do and then ultimately that migrated into being a bank or if we look at like Nokia, Nokia made rubber boots and then they transitioned into making phones. So if their if their purpose was, you know, we're going to make high-quality footwear for, you know, Scandinavian people, then how do they transition into do, does is purpose so diluted to the point where it's just We're going to make money and do good. Is that sufficient as a a purpose for for a company?
1: It's exactly the opposite, Greg. It's the strength of a company in terms of transitioning. Because come back to the definition, it's about solving problems profitably. Let's just think about what happened during the the pandemic and why purposeful companies have really risen to the fore and become much more part of the established business notions and conventions. The reason is that purposeful companies were more successful because of the nature of what a purpose is, okay? Purpose is about solving problems. What does the pandemic do? It destroys a huge amount of economic value. It creates an immense degree of social problems. In other words, it creates a huge number of new problems. What is a problem-solving company then going to do it's going to say my goodness me more problems are more opportunities more potential for identifying potentially profitable value enhancing activities that we can solve and that is exactly what the most purposeful businesses do they recognize the world has changed they recognize that they need to respond but they also recognize that because that's their purpose they are ideally placed to respond, and that's why it's such a powerful way of not only solving the problems of the world but also creating value for investors.
0: One of the analogies that I really liked in, in the book was um, talk about how we have an engineering view of the corporation, which is essentially about inputs being converted in, into outputs. And you suggest that maybe we ought to take more of a biological approach. And what's fascinating about organisms is that you have all these components that that come together and they create something which is in many ways different from the sum of the parts right and you're not just talking about organisms you're talking about kind of ecosystems you're talking about symbiotic relationships between different species and you know i found this to be a fascinating discussion and you say that just like an organism has a a mind of its own a corporation has a mind of its own it's not simply a, a tool or a Vehicle or a vessel for the will and desires of the principles, but rather it, it has some some coherent independence and I think that for many economists they they would view this as, as a bug, and you view this as a feature
1: absolutely it's the strength it's what distinguishes a corporation it's what distinguishes it from a partnership which is just a collection of individuals. It is an entity that has a degree of separation from the parts that comprise it, the individuals within it. And it has the potential to define an objective and a purpose that is more than just uh, the objectives of the uh, individuals within it. And the reason why that is so important is that it extends our capabilities. That's why the corporation was such a remarkable invention. It's a way of essentially creating a new entity that is related to, but distinct from the individual organisms within it. And that's why the biological analogy is such a powerful one in this area. And let me just illustrate why it's such a powerful concept. And let me take you back to the financial crisis of 2008, where what one observed was that organisations were behaving in what, in retrospect, was outrageous ways. And individuals who, in many cases, were extremely high-integrity individuals, behaved in a form that they would not have dreamed of behaving in their own families and communities. And the reason why they behaved in that way was that the organizations that they worked for Encourage the worst elements in individuals' characters. We characterize homo economicus, economic man, as being lazy, greedy, and selfish. Individually, we can have that trait, and that's certainly how economics conceptualize an individual. And what an organization can do is to accentuate that element. And that's precisely what the banks were doing prior to and during the financial crisis. They were encouraging people to really promote their selfish individual uh, objectives in terms of making as much money as they possibly could for themselves and for their organizations, irrespective, really, of how they were treating others. Now, that's an illustration of how an organization can create what I term a sin-integrity outcome. It intensifies the worst elements of individuals and creates worse outcomes for its customers, for its societies, and eventually for its investors who find these institutions going bankrupt. On the other hand, a corporation can do exactly the opposite. It can be the source of saint-integrity that it can convert our individual self-interest as homo economicus into something that is a collective benefit for all of those within the organization, but not only within the organization, but outside as customers and societies. And the way in which it does that is through having a purpose and having a purpose in terms of solving other people's problems. And how does it turn people around to having that as their own personal values the answer is that it instills the corporate value of helping to solve those problems within the entire organization that is what we mean by the val the culture of an organization instilling a culture that is consistent with the purpose of solving problems creates an organization that, shifts individual self-interest into collective communal objectives of helping to solve problems of others. And that is also then the source of long-term value creation for the company because it does exactly what I was talking about earlier on. It creates that sense of trust on the part of other parties by customers, suppliers, et cetera, in those organizations. And let me just say that the area, the sector of the economy where this is of greatest importance is precisely the one where the failures of markets are most pronounced, namely the financial sector. The reason why this came to the head in the financial sector is that finance, more than any other sector, depends on trust, not on contracts, on trust. And I emphasize this because the textbook model of a functioning market is the financial market. It's a textbook model because it's populated with a vast number of often small and large competing institutions operating in markets in which there's immense amounts of information flowing around where the elements of transaction costs are at the lowest of virtually any markets that one observes anywhere. And yet one observes the greatest degree of failure within financial markets of any market, of any other market. And the source of that is that actually contracts don't solve the problem. Regulation doesn't solve the problem. What's needed is trust based on the right cultures and the right purposes. Well,
0: you say that the purpose of, of governance is the governance of purpose. And I think if you're really to understand this and master this, you need to have uh, broad knowledge taken from broad range of disciplines. And when I think of finance, I think of finance has become so highly specialized that it's divorced even from other disciplines within the business schools, right? I teach in a financial engineering program, and we have a little elective which takes all the other business disciplines plus all the social sciences plus all the humanities and jams it into a little elective could this explain some of the initial resistance that there was at oxford for the creation of, of a business school you were instrumental in helping the business school to get established at at oxford and oxford's been around for nearly a thousand years and it took them a really long time to introduce a business school. We've had business schools here at our institutes of higher learning here in the United States for over a century. Is there a divide? People talk about the divide between the the arts and and the sciences. Is there also a divide between the world of economics and finance and business and the rest of of humanities and and social sciences? Do we need to somehow cross that divide through our education and, and research?
1: The answer is absolutely yes. That is a, the fundamental problem. That is the basic problem that underpins where we've got to. So I've talked about the history that has got us to where we were, where we are. But actually, the more interesting and the more important component is the intellectual history. And that intellectual history is frequently suggested to have its origins in Adam Smith and in Many respects, it does, but it's not the Adam Smith that people generally talk about, which is just the Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations. It's in particularly the Adam Smith of the Theory of Moral Sentiment, which is what underpins the potential for the Wealth of Nations to operate. And when Adam Smith wrote the Wealth of Nations it was against the background of theory of moral sentiment being the foundation of the wealth of nations. Now, we've adopted the principle of the wealth of nations with alacrity. We've forgotten the lessons that Adam Smith was teaching us from a theory of moral sentiment. And that has been entirely disastrous. And so in some respects... When I got up in the Sheldonian in Oxford University to argue the case for the creation of a business school, it was against the background of a significant fraction of the university that was highly skeptical. And their skepticism was very well encapsulated by the view of one opponent of the establishment of a business school, who said, their gods are not our gods. And what lay behind that notion was that the values of business and therefore of a business school were not the same values as those of a university, and in particular a university that attached an immense degree of significance to the humanities. Now, eventually I, together with my colleagues, argued successfully for the creation of the business school And that notion is no longer one that pervades within the university. But underpinning it was a real issue, which, if anything, has become more intensified since we had that debate in 1996 and then in 1997 again, because of what's happened during the financial crisis and since the financial crisis and the continuing promotion of the notion of there being one and only one social purpose of business. So then the idea of recognising the two books of Adam Smith, not just the one, is absolutely critical if we're really going to reform not just the nature of business, but the nature of business education going forward.
0: And of course, Oxford is a constellation of some of the oldest corporations in, in England. Colin, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. This book right here, Prosperity, and this book right here, Uh, Firm Commitment, both of them draw on economics, on finance, on history, a little bit of philosophy, uh, a sprinkling of biology. There's a bunch of different disciplines in here. I really appreciate you both writing these books and also joining me to discuss them. Hope to hear from you again soon, Colin.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Greg. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.